Bible readings uh, start on page 8 of the zine. First one is Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Our second reading is Luke 7 verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with them, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. 
The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. The theme of this year's sermons is grace, God's grace in Christ. We've been learning that there are two distinct features of God's grace in Christ. One, it's given abundantly and freely without regard for the worth of those who receive it. It's God's grace to the unworthy. And two, it's given to transform those who receive it. It elicits and expects a response. Or to use the language we've been using, it is unconditioned, that is, not conditioned by the worth of those who receive it, but it's not unconditional, that is, it's given expecting something in return. Now, instead of me talking abstractly, let me take you to an incident in Jesus' life that beautifully exemplifies this nature of God's grace in Christ. Let me take you to Luke 7, verse 36, page 9 of your zine, it's there, and that page of my notes open together may be of help this evening. You may remember that uh, some time ago, was it this year or last, I can no longer remember, John Dixon was here talking about Jesus' unusual habit that caused him trouble of dining with people, often the very wrong people. It was quite a feature of his ministry and a cause of some criticism. And in fact, in the paragraph just before the one you've got now open before you in, in, Luke, in Luke, Jesus um, is just responds to that criticism. He actually re- he calls his critics that they're behaving like spoiled children, never satisfied. And the, the sentences before the, the one week is this one, Luke 7, 34. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But not all Jesus' dinner companions were tax collectors and sinners, as you see in verse 36 of chapter 7 of Luke, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. The man who invited Jesus to dinner on this occasion was a member of a powerful and popular lay religious movement of the day. In Jerusalem, it's estimated more than one in ten eligible people were Pharisees. They were a movement devoted to the holiness and purity of Israel, keen for the Israel maintained its identity under the pagan pressures of Roman occupation, of Greek culture, and of just simple corruption within. Their focus was on holiness by living lives scrupulously by the law of God. Now, one of these Pharisees invited Jesus to dine, and as we read, quote, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. End of quote. Although a strict observant Jew, it appears that this man, like so many, adopted the Roman practice of dining, of reclining on couches 
in a big U-shaped couches facing a table. There's, a, there's, a, there's an illustration on the order of service. You have your couches in a, a U-shape with the tables in the middle and you all face in with your feet out the back on one side dining. By the way, the Last Supper was also like that, despite what Leonardo da Vinci might try and tell you. Back to our story. While they were eating like this, a woman came in and stood close behind Jesus. She's no ordinary woman. She's described as, quote, a woman of that town who lived a sinful life, unquote, which is most likely a euphemism for what today we call a sex worker, which itself is a euphemism for what yesterday we called a prostitute. Somehow this woman, notorious as she is, nonetheless, gets into the dining area. It may not have been hard, that hard all along, giving servants moving in and out with food and, and whatnot. She's carrying a little jar of perfume. She came in because she heard that Jesus was dining there. Then something really strange happens. She's crying. And as she cries, her tears begin to fall onto Jesus' feet behind him. She tries to dry them with her hair, which is out. By the way, another sign of, a dis re 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 of something of a disreputable person, I suspect. Eventually, she's kissing his feet and pouring the perfume on them. On the face of it, this is pretty embarrassing for Jesus. In the eyes of his Pharisee host, at least, this discredits him. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The Pharisee has, in a sense, three steps in his logic. If Jesus were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman she was, anointing his feet. If she knew what kind of woman he was, he wouldn't let her do it. He is letting her do it, so he's no prophet and should not be acknowledged as such. From the point of view of his host, Jesus is a fraud, or a bit of a fraud. But Jesus has read his mind, so he addresses him by, directly by name. Simon, I have something to tell you. And the Pharisee host is polite, despite what he might think inside. Tell me, teacher, he says. Now, can I just pause the sermon for a moment there, just freeze it? Because I want to draw you, before we hear what Jesus has to say, I want to draw to your attention to something very unusual here that you might not have noticed. What is unusual is that we know the name of the Pharisee host. Simon, I have something to tell you. It is Simon. Now, Simon is a very common name in, in, in that time, amongst Jewish people in Palestine. But what is uncommon, and you may not realize this, is that it's very uncommon to be told the name of anybody in the Gospels other than Jesus' explicit followers or public figures like Pilate and St. Caiaphas. The vast majority of those Jesus healed, taught and delivered are anonymous. The vast majority. But not this man Simon. As far as I can tell in the Gospel of Luke, other than Jesus' followers, 
and public figures, the only two other people with whom Jesus had interaction who are named are Jairus, whose daughter is healed in Luke 8, and Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector in Luke 19. You might want to include Simon from Cyrene, who is roped in to carry Jesus Christ in Luke 23, but that's it. Three people only are named, perhaps four, of the thousands he would deal with, and the many, many, many mentioned in Luke. A good example, in Luke 14, verse 1, we have a record of another dinner that our Lord had with a Pharisee. It's, it, the chapter begins like this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, blah, blah, blah. Prominent, but unnamed. Why are these few named? Most scholars don't have a clue. But in a very significant book, recently published, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, British scholar Richard Balcombe proposes an explanation. Balcombe suggests that these who are named are those who later joined the early Christian movement and were well known in the circles in which these stories were transmitted. That's why their names are kept. If that's true, then Simon is named because he ultimately became a believer and was still alive and well known in the circles where this account was first told and where Luke got his material. Luke of course, himself was not a witness to any of this. He is a reporting on what other people have said. But the circle in which those stories are being told, Simon is known. In fact, go one step further, and this is the first quote on page two of my quotes, a quote from Richard Balcamp's book. I quote, he says, if the names are of persons well known in the Christian communities, then it also becomes likely that many of these people were themselves the eyewitnesses who first told and doubtless continued to tell the stories in which they appear and to which their names are attached. Now, we can't be certain, of course, but we may be dealing here with eyewitness testimony behind this vivid account. I detect one or two things about this account that have the marks of uh, a person who was there talking about it. We know what Simon was thinking to himself, and there's another thing in a moment you'll see. So, it could be that Simon, the Pharisee, was known in Christian circles, who first told, and doubtless continued to tell the account in which he appears. It's possible. Unpause, back to the story. What is it that Jesus had to say to Simon? Well, he tells Simon a rather brief little story, a scenario he sketches out. It's a very simple one from the world of finance and credit. Two different men are in debt to the same money lender. One is in for 500 denarii. Denarius is about a day's labour as wages. The other is only in for a tenth of that, 50 denarii. But neither can pay, make good the money, and remarkably, the money lender forgives both debts. Simple story. Having told it, then Jesus addresses a question to Simon. Now, which of them will love him more? He asks. Good question. You can think yourself. What do you think the answer is? Who will love the money lender who forgave their debts more? Which of the two? The answer is not hard, although 
Simon is a little tentative in his answer, as though he suspects there's something of a trap here. And may I say, that's probably pretty wise. Whenever Jesus asks a question, it's never straightforward. Simon's answer is, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt given. You've judged correctly, says Jesus. And then he turns to the woman and begins a series of unflattering comparisons between her and his eminent host. Verse 44, I came to your house, Jesus says, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. You did not give me a kiss, but she's been kissing me since I got here. You did not put oil on my head, but she's put perfume on my feet. It's not that Simon has actually been rude to Jesus, his guest, just been very minimalist in welcoming him. The woman, on the other hand, has been extravagant, to say the least. But what's all that got to do with the story of the two who had their debts cancelled by the moneylender? Remember how that dialogue ended? Now said Jesus, which of them will love him more? And Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt given. You've judged correctly, said Jesus. There's a parallel here. Jesus concludes the parallel between that little scenario of debts forgiven and what's just happened at the dinner. Jesus concludes his series of unflattering comparisons between the woman and his host with these words. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. You see the comparison. And all that extravagant, over-the-top behaviour by the woman, the woman notoriously known to be a sinner in the town, is gratitude. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. And then, is it a gentle jab at Simon? But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Now obviously there's a backstory here. We aren't told what it is, but it must be that Jesus and the woman have met before. She certainly knows him. After all, when she heard that he was dining, she came to where Jesus was with the ointment of oil, uh, the, the um, jar of perfume prepared. And she expresses extravagant gratitude to Jesus. For what? I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. She may be a notorious woman who, in that town, had lived a sinful life, but now her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love to Jesus has shown. What's happened is this. Somehow she's met Jesus. Whatever transpired between them, he has declared to the woman, her many sins have been forgiven. Not just forgiven by him personally, as it were, but but really forgiven, forgiven by God, that is. Not glossed over, not treated non-judgmentally, but taken as sin, sin that brings judgment, and then forgiven. Her many sins have been forgiven. And she has believed him. 
and her whole life has been turned around. She is restored to the Lord God of Israel. Her shame and hopelessness have gone. Forgiveness has remade her life. I suspect something she never thought possible. And as a result, she is profoundly grateful to Jesus. Apparently, sometime later, she learns that he's eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she stages what turns out to be a somewhat extravagant scene where Jesus is dining with a Pharisee, no less. And so Jesus says, I, Therefore I tell you, her sins have been, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then he addresses the woman directly, reassuring her, I suspect, by saying again in public, in the Pharisee's home, what he must have said before. Verse 48, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. This creates a stir among the guests, the other guests. Who are they? Members of the Pharisee's family or perhaps some from his circle? Whoever they are, they are quietly very disturbed at Jesus' words. Verse 49, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? I suspect by who even forgives sins, what they really mean is who purports to forgive sins. Either way, it's a profound question. Who is this who even forgives sins? that's never said openly, just among themselves, and is left hanging in the story. Who is this who even forgives sins? Indeed. And finally, Jesus speaks again to the woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith in, in what has saved you? Has faith in the one who even forgives sins has saved her. When Jesus said it, she believed it. It was true. She trusted him. She received the forgiveness she probably thought would never be possible. And there, the account in Luke ends. We know nothing of what happened next. How the meal ended. Did she stay? Did he go? Did the further discussion? And that's because this incident was remembered and then retold with these words of Jesus as the climax in fact, you'll notice this in many of the gospel stories, especially interaction stories in the gospels, the stories end with a memorable punchline from Jesus, sometimes from the crowds, but often from Jesus. That's because that's the way the story is being retold and remembered. As I said at the beginning, this story beautifully exemplifies the nature of God's grace in Christ. How it is abundantly and freely given without regard for the worth of those who receive it. It's God's grace to the unworthy. And yet it transforms those who receive it. It's elicits and expects a response to, for those who have been forgiven much, love much. Which brings me finally to the way this text asks questions of us. There are two questions this text puts to us. The first is this. Do you share that woman's faith? 
Will you share that woman's faith? Her faith that her sins, though many, had met the one who even forgives sins. Now, I doubt if any of you here this evening or even watching online have lived a life as low and as shameful as this woman. Although, I'm aware, we all have hidden ballast. But this encounter invites us, whatever our circumstance, to take seriously the abundant grace of God in Christ to the unworthy, the truly unworthy. Do not let any perceived immensity of your unworthiness block you from receiving from the one who even forgives sins and stopping your life being turned around. That's the first question, the first question that the text puts to us this evening. The second is this. I'm speaking now to Christian believers who have in some way already come to the one who even forgives sins. But the story still makes us stop for a moment, brings us up short and asks the question, how much was your debt that's been forgiven? Are you one who, having been forgiven little, loves little? Have you been forgiven little? Or have you been forgiven much? I am convinced that we, or at least I, massively underestimate, massively underestimate the debt that has been forgiven us by the one who even forgives sins. Our, our, our grasp of God's holiness is so poor, our understanding of our own selves so weak. It's our many sins that have been forgiven. You see, the trouble with thinking our sins are little is that our gratitude, our love, becomes little too. That's the second question. It's a challenge to us. In fact, this text puts us a pattern for our lives. Gratitude for sins forgiven through divine gracious love became in the 16th century during the reformation of our church the heart of Anglican liturgy and theology, the heart of it through the work of Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who was the principal author of the Book of Common Prayer, which remains to this day the foundation document of our church's worship and doctrine. What he, what he achieved as he rewrote the liturgy of the church was this. Ashley Null writes about it. Here's the second quote on page two from a paper he gave some years ago. Cranmer's understanding of how liturgy would work, how the Christian life should work. I quote, So at last we have arrived at the heart of Anglican theology. Divine gracious love constantly communicated by the Holy Spirit in the regular repetition of Scripture's promises through word and sacrament is to inspire human love, drawing believers towards God and their fellow human beings in the pursuit of lifelong godliness. Yes, this account does interrogate us, exposing the way we may well play the role of minimalist Simon, and not the extravagant woman. Although, 
if Richard Balcom's theory about names is correct, at some time later, Simon himself found the abundant grace of God to the unworthy, including even him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will open our hearts to understand more deeply the debt that you have remitted and the greatness of your grace towards us so that we may live lives of joyful gratitude. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.